me to Acts chapter 1. We will spend our time together today in Acts chapter 2, the first 41 verses, but I do want to connect this to the context of what we studied together last week in Acts chapter 1. We learned last week in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus spent much time, 40 days, with His disciples after His resurrection and before He ascended to be back with the Father. And according to Luke in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, He spent time talking about the kingdom of God. And He told them that we, they were to wait in Jerusalem, to not depart from Jerusalem, for in not many days Hence, He would send His Spirit and pour it out upon them. He would baptize them with this Spirit. Then, of course, in the following verses, as we discussed last week, Jesus ascends back to heaven. The first advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, had come to an end. He had completed the work of His first advent. The angels that came to speak to His disciples promised them that a second advent, a second coming, would be in the future. But until then, as Jesus had charged them, they were to be His witnesses, but not in their own strength. For as the hymn says, if we, too in our, if we were to in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Jesus knew this, of course. But the coming of the kingdom would come not through His personal presence, not through His personal reign from some capital city somewhere on the planet. That's much more like His second advent. The time in between His first coming, His first advent, and His second advent will be characterized by the spread of the news of this kingdom. The good news of the kingdom being spread all around the world as Jesus charged His disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It would germinate in Jerusalem, then permeate Judea, and spread to Samaria, and then conquer to the ends of the earth. This would happen in the first generation of disciples. And now it is to happen in each ensuing generation. And here is the connection for us. We as the people of God, we as the recipients of the grace, the good news of the kingdom, are to be like these first disciples, trusting in the power of the Spirit freely given to us, waiting and praying and then speaking. And as we learned last week, At the end of the chapter, really the second half of the chapter, that's exactly what the disciples did. They believed the promises of Jesus. They had learned from the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested and taken away to His trial and later crucifixion. They had learned that if they did not watch and pray, they could not stand. They had learned a difficult lesson, and I would guess that if you had caught up with an older Peter and older James or John or the rest, 
that this was a lesson they had to learn the rest of their lives. So the sequence is, Jesus is the giver of power and the promise of life. Likewise, He is continuing to work in and through us by His Spirit and calls us to wait upon Him and then to act in His power. And so that's what they did. And that brings us to chapter 2. This is an extended passage. It is easy whenever we read extended passages to grow a bit dull of hearing and hope that the reader will get on with it. But because we care very much about getting through every verse of the Bible as we work through books of the Bible at a time, I'm going to read in its entirety Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. We will discuss together next week verses 42 through 47, a shorter section, but an important one. But today we will read together Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. And I call you now to receive this and to read along with me as an act of worship. We are submitting to the Word of God. We are hearing the Word of God. So I invite you now, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, to come with me to the eternal Word of the God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, 9 a.m., But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. We are going to talk today and discover, I hope, from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41, the dawn of hope. Some time ago, whenever my wife and I finally had our first and maybe even our second son, we recognized that the former days of Lee and Whitney being alone and enjoying silence were gone. When we first got married, we would go grocery shopping at like midnight. We would go to really late movies. We would stay up late um, doing whatever we wanted. Uh, we ate dinner almost every night on the carpet in our dumpy little apartment in South Carolina and watched TV. That's what we did because we could. We could go on dates whenever we wanted. We had plenty of time together. 
And then came the children, and then everything changed. And recognized that we would have to fight for time with one another. And so my wife and discerning wisdom said, we need to find something that we can do together, a shared hobby. So she brought up golf, which neither one of us are good at. She brought up tennis, which neither one of us are good at. Um, we're both so competitive that I'm sure we would have tried to become good at those things and just beaten up on each other. But we settled on, and probably I settled first, and she kind of came along on backpacking, something that I did growing up and then later on with my brothers, and so she decided she would do this too. And so we've done a good bit of this together. Whenever we go out on the trail, which is not as often as we would like, it is really difficult to sleep. For those of you who have ever done any camping, even just kind of regular car tent camping or have done a more serious backcountry trip, if you don't do it very often, it's really hard to sleep. The problem is you've worked really hard. You've expended an immense amount of calories. You're carrying a pretty heavy load, especially if you're going out for three or four days. But if you're not used to sleeping on a relatively thin mattress in a bag which confines you, especially if you have um, some measure of claustrophobia, and if you're not used to the cold and the wind and the night sounds of animals that you cannot identify, like strange owls and porcupines and other things that we have heard at night, thinking that demons are coming in to destroy us at night. It is hard to sleep. And you long for the dawn. You want the dawn to break in and end your suffering when you wish you could just be back in your bed. But you're doing this because you're fighting for companionship. Right? I've had that experience many times when I just wanted the dawn to break over the mountains that surrounded us. The world had in darkness and stillness been waiting for redemption. If you were to talk to the average image bearer of Luke's day, or more specifically, the early second or third decade when the ascension of Jesus had taken place and the apostles were waiting for the Spirit to come, most of them could not have quite put their finger on that. In other words, in the thousands of years between the fall and the coming of Jesus and now the giving of the Spirit, there was a lot of waiting and longing for the dawn to break in, for, for light to pierce the darkness. And that's what Luke is recording here. This is a massive deal. This is not just another quaint story. This is the world changing. This is the gospel going forward. This is God the Father, God the Son, sending God the Spirit in full Trinitarian power through ransomed, transformed men and women making the goodness, the light of the gospel known. So though Jesus gave the disciples marching orders, so to speak, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as I said to you last week, that's not really a command that's given in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It's really more of a promise with missional implications. In other words, Jesus is saying to the disciples, this is going to happen. 
And now he brings it to pass. He tells them to wait. So 120 of them hang out for a long time, waiting up in this upper room. And on the day of Pentecost, in the Old Testament, this is referred to as the Feast of Weeks. It's the second harvest of the year, a day in which many would have come into Jerusalem. It is supposed that the normal population of Jerusalem in this day was between maybe 55 and 95,000 people, but it would have swollen to a great degree in these feast days. And on this special day of feasting, it's called Pentecost because it's 50 days after Passover, not just the harvest of crops is celebrated, but a harvest of souls is celebrated, a harvest of light breaking into the darkness and transforming the world. And it has never been the same. So this passage speaks to us of the coming of life and the promise of the fullness of restoration. This is the dawn of a new day. First of all, we find in verses 1 through 13 that Jesus has initiated the beginning of the end, an age of salvation for all peoples. Peter mentions later, and we'll talk a bit about Peter as we talk about verses 14 through 21, or through 41, but Peter, now with great confidence, mentions later that the Spirit has been granted as a gift to the Son to pour out on humanity. You see that in verse 33. And so in verses 1 through 13, what's going on? Jesus has ascended back to the Father, and the Trinity in full fellowship from eternity past is now about to bring to pass the promise of redemption, this promise that was granted to Adam and Eve as soon as they first sinned and pictured in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the prophecies of coming redemption and the longing of Israel and the hope of the nations that the darkness could be pierced, that sin could be overcome, that goodness could once again be known, and that restoration to the Creator could be enjoyed. That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. And so now, 50 days after Passover, when Jesus was crucified, the Trinity in full power breaks out upon the apostles, those who had trusted Jesus, and now in and through them displays the power of the dawn of the age of salvation. So these 120 are gathered together in this upper room, and the Spirit comes as the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The wind, of course, you cannot see, but you see its effects. I can see out the windows behind you, not the wind, but I can see it rustling the leaves on the trees. It was unmistakable for these apostles, and it wasn't a gentle breeze, it was a rushing mighty wind, like a typhoon or a hurricane. They, they could not mistake it for what it was, it was from heaven. In the original language in which this was written, the word for spirit 
and the word for wind are the same word. Luke, with craft, depicts for us what is going on here in this passage when the Spirit, like the wind, comes upon these people. But then something did become visible. For there was fire depicted in various tongues resting on each one of them, and they were filled with the Spirit and then granted the ability to speak in other tongues that they had never learned. This was the supernatural work of God. This whole story is a little bit odd. I mean, we've never seen this, I don't think. If you have, let me know. I'd like to know about your experience. Most of us have never quite seen this, a, a cyclonic wind from heaven that then results in tongues of fire resting on us and then given the ability to speak in languages that we've never been trained in. This was the dawn of something miraculous. And it is no wonder that in the dawn of something so miraculous that God does something mighty, something unmistakable. On this day of harvest, 50 days after Passover, it's in keeping with the goodness and power of God who delights in displaying the work of salvation in and through His people that a harvest of souls will come. And we'll talk about that more in just a few moments. As each of these people who had been waiting in the upper room are now granted this gift, those around them, now they seem to have left the upper room and gone into perhaps the center of the city, people from all over the place, Jews, but from all over the known world, are there in Jerusalem, there for the feast. Some perhaps had come to dwell there at some measure of permanence. Others probably were there visiting to celebrate. And there from all points of the compass, north and south and east and west, from Mesopotamia, from Africa, and all the way to the capital, which is important because as we will finally and eventually come to the end of the book of Acts, that's where the gospel needs to get to. It needs to get to Rome, the hub of the wheel, so that it can spread out and each spoke to all the rest of the world. Luke makes it known that though these people are ethnically Jewish, or perhaps some of them converted to Judaism, they are from all points on the map. Why is that significant? It's significant because the gospel is not going to just be for northern Israelites, Galileans like these apostles, nor is it only going to be just those who dwell in Jerusalem or Judea. As Jesus told the disciples back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is going to be for all peoples everywhere. It has been suggested that perhaps this is the reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Perhaps you know this story from the early portions of Moses' record of the book of Genesis. But in the story of the Tower of Babel, you find people who become puffed up in their pride, despite the cataclysm of the flood in Genesis 
6 through 9, humanity does not learn its lesson. And right away, once again, because of the disease of sin and pride and arrogance, they want to build a tower up to heaven to show their power and their might and their prowess. And for their pride of heart, if you know the story, God forces all of them at a fell swoop to not be able to talk to each other. That is to say, He gives them different languages from which we have our English word babble, which means confusion in language. So, in one fell swoop, God takes the arrogant people of the world who are trying to sort of shake their fist in His face and divides them. And because now they are divided and cannot communicate, they can't build their tower anymore. Their plans are frustrated. It's interesting that now as you come to the dawn of salvation, when God sends the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, down to the earth upon His restored image bearers, these apostles who had been waiting on Him, that now the effects of Babel are sort of undone. If the Tower of Babel was an act of judgment, bringing confusion to humanity, separation from God and one another, the great axis vertically and horizontally, sin separates us from God and one another, what is the effect of the gospel? The effect of the gospel is that we can be restored to God and now toward one another. So, you see, as Luke suggested back in Acts chapter 1, that the gospel of Luke was written to record all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the book of Acts about? All that Jesus continued to do and teach. So, what's happening here through these apostles? huddled in this upper room, who just a few weeks prior had abandoned Jesus after the arrest in the garden and had run away from Him, who were not bold in their witness. Peter, as we will discuss in just a minute, being perhaps the chief example of this. You remember Peter? Peter, who in many ways, would become the leader of the band of the apostles. What had he done whenever Jesus had been arrested? Well, he followed along. He came to the courtyard of the high priest to see what would happen to his beloved Lord. But when questioned as to whether or not he was one of the followers of Jesus, what did he do? As Jesus prophesied, he denied him three times. But if you remember at the end of the Gospel of John, what does Jesus do? After His resurrection, He comes and shares a meal with the disciples on the seashore. And He asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter finally in frustration the third time says, you know. Also perhaps with a hint of, I'm struggling. Will I be able to? And what's coming next? Jesus, the Savior, the merciful Lord, confirms him and commissions him that he will 
help feed his lambs or his other followers. So who else should stand up now and begin to faithfully speak the words of God but this transformed disciple? Before we get to that, however, I do want to make a couple of comments in verses 1 through 13. Clearly, these people from all points of the map would have, speaking, would have spoken the common languages of the day, languages like Greek or Aramaic. Most people in this day and age would have been multilingual. People who would have dwelt in various parts of the world, however, would have also learned native dialects. What was interesting here about this event is that as these tongues of fire rest upon these disciples of Jesus is that they're able to speak in such a way that the common language is not what these dwellers and visitors hear. They hear their ethnic dialects. This was a miraculous work. Why did God do that? God could have spoken through the apostles in a known language, like Greek or Aramaic, languages that they knew. Why did God do it this way? I think God did it this way, as I suggested, to undo the effects of human sinfulness, separation from God and man, perhaps suggested by something like the Tower of Babel and the events that followed from it, but also to show that His heart and His purpose of redemption would be for the entire world. This is like a seed put into the ground that is beginning to bear the early signs of fruitfulness. That is to say, Jesus promised that the gospel would go forward from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. What's happening here in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13? The early signs of that miraculously are breaking out of the soil of human sinfulness. God is breaking in. God will undo the effects of the curse for all peoples everywhere. This will not just be an ethnic religion relegated to God's covenant people, the Jews. This will be for all peoples everywhere. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Ezekiel chapter 37. I would love to read this entire chapter to you because it's really relevant to the context and background of Acts chapter 2, but because I've already read to you 41 verses, um, I can't do that. That's against preaching rules. I'm going to read a few suggestive verses from this passage to help give us some context that I think Luke had in mind as he wrote. Ezekiel, this odd prophet of God, depicts for us one of the odd scenes of his prophecy. Verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. This is sort of uh, redundant, but they were dead bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, 
and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And that's what happened. God tells Ezekiel, who has learned by this point to just do what God says, despite how strange it sounds, prophesy, verse 9, to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And then they did, verse 10, standing up on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. He begins to interpret this for him. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves. The word of the Lord, verse 15, came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. This is a reminder that the house of Israel, after Solomon's reign, had been broken into two, two separate kingdoms. As you see at the end of verse 19, God is going to join the stick back together and make them into one nation and bring them again, verse 21, into their own land. In verse 22, one king shall be over them. And in verse 23, he will save them from their black backslidings and he will cleanse them and he will be their God. In verse 24, my servant David, who had been long dead by the time of Ezekiel's prophecy, will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in his rules and obey his statutes. In verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant, and I will put them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations, verse 28, will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Why did God send the symbol of fire? Fire cleanses. Fire speaks to powerful, mighty, heavenly cleansing. What's God doing at Pentecost, this day of wind and fire? It's the dawn of salvation promised in Ezekiel 37. When Israel, characterized by deadness because of sin, is brought back to life through God the Trinity. And what will happen when God brings His people back to Himself in grace? The nations will see. Jesus has initiated the beginning of the end, an age of salvation for all peoples. But in verses 14 through, through not 21, 41, I have the wrong reference on the screen. It's verses 14 through 41. Jesus has brought about the promise of a new and better covenant. A covenant that transforms individuals like Peter. Peter, the leader now of these disciples, and that will be really the case all the way up through chapter 10 or so. He is the primary actor through a lot of these chapters. Peter, who had before denied Jesus, 
preaches the first Christian sermon, so to speak. He who had shrunk back in fear now stands up in courage. Why? Was he doing penance here? Was he trying to prove to the risen Lord who he believed was watching him that he was strong now? That's not the case. The spirit that had been poured out on them has now transformed this man. I would suggest that when any person comes to faith in God, throughout all of human history, that the Spirit is involved. I would suggest that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. Some kind of new birth has to take place so that we can repent of sin and trust God. That has always been the case. Humanity cannot and will not seek for God. God has to intervene. That's clear from passages like Ezekiel 37. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Only God can make us alive. I would suggest that Peter and the rest of the apostles could not have trusted Jesus unless a miraculous work of heaven had taken place in their hearts. What I'm saying to you is that in some sense, they already had the Spirit. But in another sense, they didn't. I would say to you that they had been granted new birth and in some sense the indwelling of the Spirit, but the baptism of the Spirit, this powerful working of the Spirit, was new. So I would say to you that the Spirit had always been active in the work of God's people. That's the only way sinful rebellion can be overcome. We will never seek for God of our own accord. What happens here in Acts chapter 2 is difference in, in degree. Maybe not difference in kind. The Spirit had always been with God's people, I would suggest. But the degree to which He is now with His people is totally different. It is way amped up. And why is it given? It is given so that God's work of redemptive grace might be made known. So that the new covenant that Jesus had ratified on the cross and sealed through His resurrection could be spread everywhere. That the Spirit who had made these apostles new at the point of their conversion is now poured out upon them without measure so that the work of Jesus could be known everywhere. So that the new covenant now dawning, this light of a new day could spread to the darkest and most remote ends of the earth. Jesus has brought about the promise of a new and better covenant. And He does this initially through His transformed and amplified in power men like Peter. Peter references here in verse 17 the prophecy of Joel. This is from Joel chapter 2. Joel prophesied that at some point in the future, there would come a day when God would pour out His Spirit upon His sons and daughters. It would not be gender-specific. It would not be socioeconomic-specific, according to verse 18. It would be for the rich and the poor, for men and women. And they will prophesy, all these people, and then He will show wonders. And eventually, the day of the Lord will come when 
judgment will break out upon the earth and the end, this magnificent day of judgment and cleansing and transformation will come. And during this age, for it's more than a 24-hour period, anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Another strange part of this really strange chapter. You can see enough in this passage to know that some of Joel 2 is fulfilled here. The Spirit is given to people. And through the Spirit, prophetic words are uttered of, of the power of God, of, as Luke says in verse 11, the mighty works of God. But for the most part, we have not seen signs of blood and fire and vapor of smoke and lasting eclipse-like effects when the sun is turned to darkness and the moon to blood. What do you do with this passage? Scholars are really all over the page on this. Some would suggest that some of this had taken place at the moment of Jesus' death, that when darkness had descended upon the earth, God pouring out His wrath on the sun, the effects of sin being sin, seen even in the environment, that some of this came to pass, and that when Jesus died and gave up the ghost, that, that even the graves were opened and dead people came back to life and started walking around again. It was like an earthquake. It's possible. It's possible that other cataclysmic events throughout human history have taken place as well. This is one of the reasons whenever geological or weather phenomena happen that you see people coming out of the woodwork declaring that Jesus is going to come on a certain date. In fact, if you were paying attention, it was foretold that last Saturday was going to be the day when Jesus finally came back because some secret planet was being revealed and blocking something. I don't even know. I've stopped paying attention to such things. Um, it didn't, clearly. We're still here. Others would suggest that this will come in the end, either with some measure of literalness or some measure of metaphorical symbolism. I would suggest that maybe it's all of that, that from the crucifixion of Jesus onward until the end, at His second coming when He will bring judgment upon the unrighteous and salvation to the righteous, that everything is changing. As Paul suggests in his writings, we are in the last days now. The difficult thing for us is that the last days have been lasting for a couple of millennia. It's kind of hard for us to square in the way that we think about the world, but as Peter will later say in one of his epistles, a thousand years is like a day to God. God operates in time and space, but exists outside of it. So what we perceive to be interminable ages, God sees as but a blip. And we could look at it this way, at the fact that God has not yet sent the Son in His second advent, bringing full judgment upon the unrighteous who deserve it, we have to admit, 
sin is a heinous act of treason against our Creator. That the delay is not because God has forgotten. Or more specifically for the way that we look at the world, His delay is not because He has abandoned us or doesn't care. His delay is an act of love and grace so that nations and peoples all over the globe throughout generations might come to know Him and be restored in worship and populate the new heaven and the new earth after it is judged and cleansed and brought back to perfection so that we who have trusted in Jesus will be there with a multitude of the heavenly hosts who will praise God for the delay, a delay of mercy and love. So I suggest to you that Joel 2 was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, this day of wind and fire, this dawn of a new age, but not completely. It's an already not yet phenomenon. It's kind of like pregnancy. When a man and a woman are granted the gift of conception, that's a real human that exists within the womb of its mother. But it is not yet all that it will be. As you go to doctor's visits and hear updates on the baby and see ultrasounds and sonograms and see the baby developing and see the first heartbeat, ventricles of the brain and fingers and toes and are able to eventually determine its gender and now with 3D imaging, maybe even seeing a little bit what it will look like. That child is yours. That son or daughter to come is yours. That's what happened on Pentecost. Conception, initiation, dawning, Where are we in this long day, this day of the Lord? At what point on the clock are we? I don't know. If this was 6 a.m., the breaking of the sun over the eastern horizon, where are we today? Are, Are we at noon? Are we at 7 p.m.? Is dusk setting? I, I don't know, and I will not pretend to suggest to you. But I do know that the effects of the dawning of this new day have been brought to us. God's Spirit has been granted to us, those of us who did not deserve it. And while we await the final judgment when God will judge this sinful world and vindicate His servants, what are we to do? We are to be like Peter not trusting in our own strength, for we don't have any. We will shrink back like Peter, weary, prayerless, trusting in our own strength, lazy, cowardly. But we've been granted the Spirit, and greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. We don't go in our own strength. We don't speak in our own strength. We've been granted the third person of the Trinity. As Jesus said to his disciples, it is better that I go away, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How did he do that? He did that through his spirit. And now baptized and amplified in his power, they speak of his goodness and his grace. In verse 23, 
This was done by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. All this work of redemption, it wasn't happenstance, it wasn't a maybe. Though evil Jews and evil Romans, citizens and priests, kings, were responsible for the crucifixion and death of Jesus, the most heinous sin that was ever committed was the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet it was also the most miraculous work of grace ever accomplished. And the tension of this event, Peter brings out with courage to say to them, you're responsible for this. But even more so, God is responsible, using your sin sinlessly to bring about redemption, for that's how God works. In the midst of the darkness, light breaks in. In the midst of human sinfulness, God is at work. When everything seems bleak and dark and hopeless, what does God do? He sends His Spirit. He makes dry bones live. He takes His enemies. He makes them His own. And not only this, He has glorified His Son. For as David prophesied, not just about Himself, but about a coming Messiah, He cannot be held by death. He will overcome it and conquer it. And now this risen Lord, the Son of David, is the King of that is prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 37, who God will set over His people. And that's what Jesus is doing in Acts chapter 2. And it's what He's doing now. He is our risen King, and He has granted us His Spirit. We are not alone. He has united us back to God. He's united us toward one another. And now the dawn of the new age that we are experiencing still, we have the opportunity both to enjoy and to share. My brothers and sisters, we have been made participants in the most amazing act of God that one could ever conceive. This is the most important thing that has ever happened. The day of salvation has been made known. We have been made participants in it, and now we have the responsibility and privilege by the power of the third person of the Godhead to make this known to all peoples everywhere. Jesus is now reigning and one day will fully reign. As we talked about last week from Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been invested in Him, and He will be with us until the end of the age. Yes, we will struggle with cowardice. Yes, we will struggle with doubt. Yes, we will wonder why He tarries and delays. But while we wait, we trust in His Spirit which has been granted to us. And what is the response of these people here? They're pricked to the core. The Word divides things which seem indivisible, joints and marrow. And they say to Peter in verse 37, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent. Have a change in mind, a change in heart, a change in trajectory. And prove through public baptism that you have repented of such sins and have trusted Jesus. Baptism doesn't cleanse us. Baptism is an outward symbol of what's happened inside of us by the, by the gift of the Spirit. These people were, were pierced to the core of who they were. They recognized their sinfulness. They saw that Jesus was the only hope for life. And what could happen to them? They could get the gift of the Spirit, verse 38, so that they could come back to life. They were like walking zombies, dry bones clattering around together. God will put sinews on them and flesh and give them new hearts and they could live once again. 
And this promise, verse 39, would be for them and for their children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. This sovereign Lord who had brought about the work of redemption in Jesus, overcoming evil and sin, will overcome evil and sin generationally and globally and sequentially. He did that in you and me. And through our witness, he will do that to the rest of the world, this crooked generation. So, verse 21, those who received his word were baptized as a public confession of their repentance and faith. And they were added to that that day about 3,000 souls. Jesus wanted to make a splash, and he did. A day of wind, a day of power, a day of fire. The dawn of a new age. Disciples were transformed. New disciples were brought in. And the band of the followers of Jesus, the King of Israel, the risen Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world, has more and more people now through which the gospel will spread everywhere. And that's where we find ourselves today. Where are we on the clock? I've already told you I don't know. Our response should be, as we close now, both gratitude that because of the delay of Jesus, we have now been restored as worshipers, as sons and daughters of God. But not just gratitude, also response of witness. May the Lord Jesus empower us by His Spirit to be grateful, to enjoy Him, and to bring others into this enjoyment. The Spirit has been granted to you and to me to transform us and to transform the world. May God be faithful to do that in and through us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, now I pray, take 